Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of Yukon 360. That's the world's preeminent podcast covering every aspect of life at the University of Connecticut, from soup to nuts. I've said that two weeks in a row now. Oh. I'm going to find a new phrase. Yeah, too many. Joining me, as always, Julie Bartuka. I got to pet the Jonathans today. That's excellent. I'm really excited. And Ken Best. In the house, as they say. In the house. <laughs> been reading about Parliament Funkadelic, so I'm in the house. <laughs> Well, we hope that this will be uh, this show will be a mothership of sorts, blasting you off to realms of knowledge about you. Well, I have to ask: Does Julie even understand that what you just did? I, I think so. You're down with the P funk, right? Uh, not nope. as M- much mothership as... connection. No, I don't know. I, that right. reference is lost on me. I'm sorry. I interviewed George Clinton. Many of years course, ago. you did. <laughs> I can prove it. I have the clip. All right. Uh, we actually have a lot of news to get to this week, we do. as well as some wonderful uh, recorded pieces. We're going to learn a lot about some of our students and uh, some of our faculty, as always, the interesting stuff we have here. Um, so I'm not going to give you the song and dance about rating and subscribing, because if you're listening to this, you already figured out how to get the podcast. But you should still subscribe. You should, you should ra- tell your friends. You should tell all of your friends. And people, even kind of acquaintances. <laughs> and and, and the, those relatives that you were still speaking with. Yeah, post it on Facebook. Maybe the ones you're not. They could serve to be enlightened. Why don't we jump right into the Husky headlines? <laughs> Ken, what's happening in your world? I actually have two connected stories concerning our uh, presence in the greater Hartford area. Uh, first and foremost, we're going to expand our presence in the fall in Hartford with the relocation of the Master of Fine Arts program in Arts Administration is going to be now operating out of the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art, which is the oldest continuously operating public art museum in these United States of America. Yes, indeed. Uh, the MFA program is part of the School of Fine Arts, of course. It's an individualized program, and students get a lot of core skills in administration and then can focus on special areas like marketing, community engagement, leadership, uh, strategic planning, budgeting, financing, what you, the skills you need to run an arts organization. Uh, Fine Arts Dean Andaleva says the program uh, trains students to work in any kind of arts organization, and that will allow them to take these skills across their careers into different types of organizations. I was at the Wadsworth recently and hadn't been there for a while. There are works by Renoir, Monet, Van Gogh or Van Gogh, however we're going to go. I think you know, it's Van Gogh, isn't I think it? So. That's, that, that, that's an Annie Hall reference. Oh, another Rembrandt one. and uh, contemporary folks like Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol, and Pablo Picasso. Now, connected to that is the former regional campus. The governor of Connecticut, Daniel Malloy, made an, a big announcement that an international high-tech company wants to move its United States headquarters to our former campus, the 58-acre regional uh, West Hartford campus near Asylum Avenue and Troutbook Drive. It's going to create about 330 jobs. Uh, Seven Stars Cloud Group is a global financial company. That's a technology company trading on NASDAQ Stock Exchange. It leverages artificial intelligence and blockchain technology to transform traditional financial assets into digital ones. And a blockchain is really a group of records, uh, which is known as blocks. And they use secure communications, otherwise known as cryptography, to put all this stuff together and be safe. Now, our Board of Trustees and the West Hartford folks have to approve this. We hope that that's going to happen soon. But that's big news. That is big news. By the time you hear this, I'm confident our Board of Trustees will have approved it. But then it goes to West Hartford. I don't know what the timeline is for that. Julie? Yes. What's going on? 
Uh, last week, we announced the launch of a new Master's of Engineering in Global Entrepreneurship, which is the first engineering-focused entrepreneurial graduate degree in the state. The program is a partnership between the Yukon Schools of Engineering and Business, Trinity College, and the University of New Haven, and it's supported by CT Next. Um, I was kind of surprised to learn 90% of startups fold. So the schools want to create a nurturing ecosystem for these types of businesses, and it will enable novice entrepreneurs to learn best practices, receive mentorship from veteran entrepreneurs, and be set up for success. The fully funded program will recruit individuals from all over the world who are in the early stages of developing startups or have shown a proven interest in entrepreneurship to apply for the program, and accepted students will receive full tuition remission, a yearly stipend, and significant other resources to help them commercialize their ventures. Very nice. My news is uh, we've got a couple of new faces here on Planet Yukon. <laughs> Starting up, Governor Malloy, which, who Ken mentioned, uh, appointed uh, Kevin O'Connor, who is a former high-ranking uh, U.S. Justice Department official, to our Board of Trustees, which is the, if you don't know, the Board of Trustees is the, uh, the governing board of the university. They call the shots. They have the final say in everything from hiring the president to approving new academic programs and majors. Uh, Kevin O'Connor was served as U.S. Attorney from Connecticut from 2002 to 2008, and he was Associate Attorney General of the entire United States of America from 2008 to 2009. During his time at the Department of Justice, he uh, served as Associate Deputy Attorney General, Chief of Staff to the Attorney General, and chaired the Department's Intellectual Property Task Force. But more important than all that, he's an honors graduate from the UConn School of Law. Do you think he'll help us get that uh, Tom's History Corner name change passed with those very powerful people? You know, now that we have somebody we should lobby him. with some connections, we might be able to cut through the legal red tape <laughs> to rename Tom's History Corner. Welcome aboard, Attorney O'Connor. Also, another new face here on Planet Yukon, which is something I'm going to stick with. <laughs> Tom. Uh, Sharon M. Gordon has been named the first woman to serve as dean of the School of Dental Medicine in the school's 50-year history. She's a, an educator, clinician, and scientist. Uh, she is coming to us from East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. I know it well. I used to live in North Carolina. That's a little personal tidbit. <laughs> uh, she received her doctorate in dental surgery from the University of Texas at San Antonio. She completed her residency at San Antonio's Medical Center Hospital with additional residency training and fellowships at the National Institutes of Health. And she earned a master's of public health and epidemiology and a PhD in clinical investigation at Johns Hopkins University. This is a well-credentialed person. Mm -hmm. Outgoing Dean Monty McNeil, who a lot of people in Connecticut know, will remain in the faculty, and he is going to be representing UConn as chair of the board of the American Dental Education Association. And in a personal note, my dentist, Dr. Tris Carta, hi, doctor, uh, is very active in the uh, Dental School Alumni Association. So I'm sure he'll be excited by this news. And I'm getting a crown tomorrow. <laughs> so hopefully, well, I mean, you know, he'll hear this after. he. This is just the type of information our listeners are dying to get. People each, want to know us. Fortnight. Is this categorized as TMI? No, no maybe. No. Well, it doesn't um, sound pleasant. That's all I have to say. Look, Best if, of if, luck. If it helps me with my dentist, I'm just going to give shout outs. I don't care. Holla. I don't know if that's an ethical issue. <laughs> so uh, something a little different this time around. Yes. I have <gasps> a recorded piece that I put together that we're going to hear. I'm taking a break this week because I need it. I didn't have to come up with a segue for that either. We are going to now listen to uh, an interview I did with two now graduates of the University of Connecticut, uh, Ryan Glista, who just received his master's degree, and Matt Bilms, who just got his bachelor's degree in uh, May. They are the co-founders of the Yukon Film Club. And now this is a group in the uh, Department of Digital Media and Design. And as you would expect from the name, they make films. Mm -hmm. 
And I first encountered them in my capacity as the person who says yes or no to film and TV <laughs> requests. Members of the club wanted to film something on the uh, depot campus. And they did. We were able to accommodate them. But I wanted to learn more. And I have to tell you, I watched the films that uh, this group put together, and I was blown away. These are really, really impressive films, some of which have been entered in film festivals around the country. Uh, these are our pro-quality films, really creative, really fascinating. And uh, Ryan and Matt give us insight into how the club came together and, and what they hope uh, the club will accomplish, which is, is going on, even though they have graduated, the club is, is stronger than ever. So let's take a listen. My name is Matt Vilmos, and I am a senior here at UConn studying digital media and design. So tell me about the film club. So film club is an on-campus organization where students can meet once a week to uh, produce, uh, film, and edit their own original short films. Uh, and students can come from all levels of experience, people who've never worked on a film before, to people who have worked on lots of short films for classes independently or otherwise. And if you don't know what you're doing, it's a great opportunity to learn and get more experience. Tell me about the films you directed. So the first film I directed has kind of been buried <laughs> because um, we weren't too happy with it, but it was called... It's called Assassin. That's a working title. That was one of the very first films we ever did at film clubs. We were just getting our feet under us, and uh, it was a good learning experience, learning what not to do and learning uh, what you needed in order to make a film successful. And the second film I directed, I had funding from the UConn Idea Grant from the Office of Undergraduate Research, and it was called Exit, which is a short uh, sci-fi dystopia kind of film. What goes into directing a film? So a lot goes into directing a film. I think first is just communicating with your crew because you have the cinematographer, you have a producer, you have a sound guy, and just making sure they're on the same page, um, that everything is going smoothly. And then also working with the actors is a big thing. You have to be able to uh, communicate with them and tell them what's working, what's not working, and really work with them to get your vision of what the film is to the screen. So doing uh, this film, uh, shooting it over six days over a month, did anything, any challenges come up that you didn't expect? Sure, there are lots of there are lots of challenges. Um, the biggest challenges came in pre-production with trying to figure out a cast, trying to figure out locations. Uh, one challenging thing is that UConn doesn't have an established film program on campus. So when you go to different departments or different local businesses and say, "Hey, we're working on this film. Could we use your place for a few hours when you're not open?" or um, we do want to pay even. A lot of people, they just don't get it. They don't see the benefits. They don't like their name and the credits, their exposure. So that's a challenge in terms of just finding locations. Casting is obviously a challenge. My film deals with, deals with um, like a, an office environment. So casting undergraduate students would really work because it would make it seem very much like a college production. So I was able to cast several graduate students, um, several local actors in the Wyndham Theatre Guild, and I had one actress come up from New York City for a weekend to film her scenes. Now that it's done and you see it, what do you think? I think I'm happy with it. I, I consider, even though I directed Assassin before that, I really do consider Exit my first, uh, my directorial debut. I'm, I'm really happy with it for a first-time um, film. I've submitted it to a few film festivals. It's gotten into a few small festivals around the country, and it's waiting to hear back from several more. So I'm hoping it uh, gets a bit more exposure. Yes, uh, my name is Ryan Glista. I am a second-year grad student. I'm a fake candidate in digital media and design. Could you tell me uh, how did the film club start? When I decided to continue to get a grad degree at UConn, um, I really wanted to delve deeper into film production in a way that I hadn't in undergrad. Um, in my, for my undergrad degree, I um, received a BA, an individualized BA in film, and I took almost every film class offered at UConn. Um, and my idea was to make a more centralized environment and a, a space for students to create films as a collective, as a group, someplace that 
all students would know that this is where film is being done. So it started off, I started off with a group of DMD students, advertised the, the idea of the film club to other departments and other places around campus, and we went to the involvement fair, and now it's grown from, you know, a couple of DMD students that were in my department to, gosh, uh, I mean, there's at least 50 people at every meeting from every department at UConn, all kinds of students that are really interested in filmmaking and the, the art of cinema production. So, so, so what happens uh, in Film Club? What be, is it all just about production from start to finish? And how do you decide what projects are going to be pursued and, and how do you sort of steer those along? We have a pitch meeting either at the beginning of the semester or before we start um, writing. So everyone comes in with an idea and we take a whole meeting to share the, the ideas and then we all vote democratically on the ideas and narrow it down choose top two to produce for that semester that year. So what kind of things have you done working on films with, as part of Film Club? I directed two films. Um, the first semester that, I, that we established the club, I directed a comedy short film, a musical comedy called Opening Night. There was a crew and a cast of about 15 people. We went and filmed in E.O. Smith for uh, four days and created an original soundtrack of eight songs, me and a, a team of two other people. And it's an outrageous, farcical adventure backstage of a high school musical production. And it was really exciting to finish that over the course of one semester and then screen it at the end of the semester in front of, uh, we actually screened it in front of one of my digital media and design classes. And um, everyone that had been a part of the film was in the room. And it was that moment where I was like, oh, this, this film club idea, like this could really work. This could be something that that could, this is a feeling that I want to share with a lot more students at UConn. So what's the future of a film club at UConn? I mean, we've elected new officers for the club to replace Matt and I. They're just as excited about the future of the club as we are. They bring different talents um, to the table. And also, um, there's a lot of film classes in dramatic arts, and there might be some larger collaboration between different fine arts departments. And that line of communication has been opened up, which is really exciting. Yeah, well, the great thing about film club is the time commitment is what you make of it because you can sign up for a big role on a film like uh, director, producer, or cinematographer, in which case, yes, it is a big time commitment because you're committing to one of the three lead roles on the film and you need to be dedicated. You need to show up to every meeting and probably some additional meetings and be there for very long shoot days as well. But you can also come and just kind of observe and be a PA and come to meetings when you can and go to shoots when you can. And you can really make it just whenever you're available, show up, and then when you feel like you're ready, maybe then you can apply for a big role. We try not to just have it be like come in and, and, and tell a story, but also it's a learning experience. And so the way we've set up the, the organization of the club is the more experienced students are the team leads, and then we, they also teach workshops in all of the facets of production. I mean, an easy way, though, it's easy to become like more involved, though. I mean, we have yes. one new member, uh, Jake Cotson, where he was a production assistant on Exit at the beginning of last semester in fall 2017. Then in the middle of that semester, he became producer on a project, and then recently he's directed his own short film. So within two semesters, he went from just a PA to being a director in one of our productions. So yeah. um, if you're willing to learn and like observe and like take in everything, you can kind of just regurgitate, for lack of a better term, that back out and uh, be a lead on your own project. Uh, just keep an eye out for Film Club on campus and more films being made because um, it's just a great opportunity to get involved and someone comes to you asking to use your classroom or laboratory for a film, <laughs> say yes, because they're not going to break anything, and it'll be great exposure for you, and you'll get your name in the credits. So uh, come be a part of Film Club. Stop by and pitch an idea. Yeah.
All right. What did you guys think of my first recorded piece? <laughs> Very good, Tom. Yeah. Very interesting. Those students are awesome. Well, we're going to have to get another assignment out then at some point. Well, let's not get out of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> he has a lot of work to do with Tom's History Corner. Let's, in fact, turn it over to the pro who puts together these recorded pieces every week. Ken Best. Ken, tell us what we're going to hear. This is the 20th year of the Long River Review, which is the literary journal of art and literature staffed by the undergraduates here at UConn. And I think most people know what that is because it appears every year. It's an outlet for creative writing, uh, poetry, short stories, uh, longer fiction and excerpts, and, and art, because that's all part of what the Long River Review does. So I thought it would be a good idea to speak with uh, this year's editor, Rebecca Hill, who is a senior, a double major in English and economics, about what it was like putting the review together. Uh, all of us around this table, I know, have at one time or another had that kind of responsibility as an editor and it's not quite what you'd think it would be. And when you're a student busy trying to do other things, there's lots of challenges. So I sat down and talked with Rebecca just as she was getting ready to finish graduation. But we will hear an excerpt from the short story, Fourth of July, read by uh, Lucy Turkell, who is a freshman who won the 2018 Jenny Hackman Memorial Prize for Fiction on campus. Uh, she just finished her freshman year. She writes for the Daily Campus, and she's creating an individualized major in comparative literature, focusing on African-American literature, both in the United States and Latin America. And she's learning Spanish and going to incorporate that in as well. Wow. Uh, we'll also hear Rebecca read part of her short story, uh, Watering Flowers, that was in the Long River Review. So we welcome Rebecca Hill, the editor of the Long River Review. It's a big job. There's lots of responsibility. You worked at the Long River Review last year, and now as a senior, you are in charge of the entire uh, publication. What was that like for you? It was a bigger uh, jump than I was expecting. Last year, I served as a fiction editor, so I oversaw the fiction panel, um, and we read all the submissions that we got in the genre of fiction. I thought that had a responsibility until I got to the editor-in-chief role, and I realized how much the journal does and how much there is going on um, and how I was in charge of all of that, which was exciting and a little terrifying. You describe it in your, your letter from the editor as uh, lassoing a multi-headed beast. I thought that was a great description <laughs> because... It's just so much. You've got all different types of writing, plus the artwork, which is a whole different area of responsibility. What was your approach once you digested everything and figured out, okay, now I have to deal with this? What was your thought on how you were going to handle all that material, first of all, and then the responsibility on top of that? There was a lot to do, but it was also spread out over time, which I think helped a lot. When we started the year... We had all of our submissions, or at least we had submissions from contests, which we looked at first, and then we had submissions from our general pool, uh, which we then looked at. It was, in some ways, easy to start because we had an exact schedule of what needed to be done, and the first thing that had to be done was reviewing the submissions. You couldn't really go for it before that was done. I was lucky, too, because I had a lot of people in good roles who were helping in the process. So I had people who, like, uh, there was, um, we had a copy editing uh, editor who was in charge of uh, making sure that everything in the journal had, like, proper grammar, stylistically consistent. Uh, we had our art liaison who helped us work with the design center because 
Long River does all the writing, but we have people that we work with at the at the Yukon Design Center who uh, do the design of the journal and also uh, look over the art and make sure that they approve of all the art. I had a lot of different people in different roles who were making sure that their interests and individual roles were being completed. Uh, my job was more making sure that these tasks were actually being done and that the tasks once done fit in with the other tasks that needed to be done. And I also had the uh, help of our faculty advisor, Sean Forbes, who is the director of the creative writing department. He uh, was doing the same lassoing I was, uh, so we were usually on the same page of making sure that everything was actually done. So I wasn't doing even the editor-in-chief role alone. You're an English and economics major, uh, a minor in women's, gender, and sexuality studies, and a concentration in creative writing, and you've won a bunch of awards for your work, both in economics and in English. How did all this help you with doing the work? I think the preliminary way it helped me was uh, a think- thinking across different uh, disciplines and thinking about across different ways of thinking. Within the Long River itself, we have people who think in very different ways. Even though we're all artists, if you're interested in nonfiction, you're thinking in a more systematic way or maybe a more... Um, straight from one point to another point kind of way than, say, perhaps a poet uh, who tends to think in terms of emotion and how to convey that emotion. So it's a difference between being a linear thinker and then looking at the creative process and soaking things in from different places. And that's even different than uh, being a design thinker or an art thinker, which is even a little beyond uh, what I understand. But Having worked within the economics discipline and within the creative writing discipline, I can understand how to communicate, uh, even if I don't always understand the thought process. Which I guess is why when you describe yourself in the back of the Long River Review, you have a very simple statement. Avid fan of pineapple-themed home decor. It's true. I have a lot of pineapple-themed home decor. (laughs) So I I guess that sets you up to do this. (laughs) What did you learn from this experience? Because you said it, it was a long process doing something like this. You go through ups and downs mm-hmm. and trials and tribulations and solving problems and thinking that you're never going to get it done, but eventually you get it done. I think what I learned is um, curation is not the same thing as creative writing. You can be a great writer and not be so good at curating, which means selecting what sorts of works that you want to be pu- uh, that you want to publish, and then making sure that these works appear in an order that is uh, that complements each of them. The process of putting that all together is hard, and then the process of making sure that every piece is getting the attention that it deserves, and if one piece is weaker than the other, that it doesn't appear weaker than than the other, that's complicated, and that takes uh, some time to figure out. So that was a really interesting thing to learn that I wasn't I wasn't exactly expecting that when I came in, but it makes sense now. Okay, so we're going to hear uh, from Lucy Turkell, who took first place in the Jenny Hackman Memorial Award for Short Fiction. And you took second place for your short story. What do you remember about uh, Lucy's work, which uh, was quite interesting? Not too different from yours in, in a reflex, reflective kind of way. It's true. I read all of the works that we published uh, before we published them. I really enjoyed Lucy's in how it spoke to the relationship between sisters. My piece also uh, talks about sisters and like the sisterhood relationship. I think my favorite part of the piece uh, was both how it reflected on sisterhood and also how it used sisterhood and the experience of this girl going to a party to portray depression and disappointment with becoming an adult and with 
the process of maturing, which I thought was well done. Fourth of July. I had agreed to take my sister to the pool club because it was July 4th and because I had nothing better to do. I drove us in my dad's car and let my sister sit in the front seat even though she wasn't allowed to. It made her excited. Tonight, mom said I could watch the fireworks with Audrey, my sister said, and I'm going to wear the red shirt I just bought with my own money and buy an ice cream and maybe even a hot dog. She was bubbling and I listened to her. That sounds awesome, I said, and I meant it. At the pool club, my sister swam in the shallow end and I watched her. She wore a bathing suit with an American flag design and red goggles and tried to swim fast. I remembered when I was my sister's age and I liked to swim fast and wear goggles at the pool club too. Now, whenever I went with my friends, it was just so we could tan and talk to boys. It wasn't as much fun. My sister swam to the edge of the pool where I was sitting. Come in with me, Sadie, she said. I smiled and said okay because I always said yes to whatever my sister wanted. She was so cute, and she reminded me of when I was little like that. It was a nice memory that I like to think about. I swam fast with my sister. We mostly stayed in the shallow end, but I held her hand and led her out to the deep end at one point. I let her climb on me, and I swam around with her on my back for a little while. My hair got messy, but I didn't care because I was laughing, and my sister was laughing, and the sun was shining. It felt good. That was Lucy reading an excerpt from her essay called Fourth of July. And now, Rebecca, we're going to have you read an excerpt from Watering Flowers, your short story. Bubba used to take Leia and I for walks in the morning before Dad and Grandpa woke up. I think it was just a ploy to get us out of the house so we wouldn't disturb them by playing too loudly. Whenever we did go for a walk, as soon as we got a few yards down the street, Bubba would start pointing out the plants she liked. She didn't know their names, but she had an eye for the brightest and most delicate. See this red flower, girls? she'd say. This bush only ever flowers this time of year, but it smells so good. Come, smell it. We would take turns sniffing. Leia giggled as it tickled her nose. The roads in Eden Estates were all lined with manicured gardens everywhere you walked, except on the paths for the golfers, which cut outward from the sidewalks to wind across vast rolling lawns. Along the community's main road, the plants were larger, big bushes with colorful leaves, bulbous angled cacti, wide-trunked palm trees arched toward the clouds. Often we passed the estate's dark-skinned maintenance workers, wielding their huge hoses with dirt-stained gloves. Bubby would wish good morning to each of them as we went by. Beyond the shrubbery were the golf courses. Even early in the morning, I could see distant, stiff-looking men clustered beside white golf carts like apparitions in the mist across the grass. Last year when we visited, I had leapt over the bushes and taken off running across the field because I wanted to get out in the sun. I thought it was like at the park, where you could go out on the soccer field if there was no one playing on them. But Bubba had yelled at me to come back here right now, and the tone of her voice scared me. You can't go out on the golf course, she said. It's only for grown-ups. And it's not safe because there might be red ants that will bite you. She turned around and Leo was behind her, tugging at the stalk of some huge bushy red grass plant. No, she said, grabbing at Leo's hand. We don't touch that. We're just here to look, not to touch. I was about to cry from embarrassment. Leo looked at me and then at Bubba and then opened her mouth to wail. Bubba squatted down and picked her up. Now, now, girls, Bubba said. We don't need to cry. It's all right. We're just going to keep strolling along this path here. We're just going to follow this path and admire all the pretty foliage and look but not touch. We went strolling. 
For years later, I would picture the golf courses as roving with huge cherry red ants, which would scurry madly along the roots of the short-clipped grass until, unseen by you, your foot would brush one, and then they would leap up at you, all in one wave. Rebecca, thank you very much for coming in and taking time off before you graduate. What is going to be the next step for you? Because you've been recognized for economics and for writing. Uh, you have to make a decision now which direction you might be going in, or maybe there's a way to do both. I don't know. There is a way to do both. What I'm looking uh, at doing is working for either an economics magazine or some sort of economics research body. So working, for instance, as a research analyst where I can learn about new ways uh, the economics is exploring both micro topics like wage differences and income inequality or maybe uh, macro topics like economic development, foreign affairs. Both of those things are interesting to me. And what I want to do is bring my experience in writing to contribute to the study of those topics. Although maybe you might write a, a short story about an economist someday. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's not that many of those stories out there, so maybe I can contribute that. She got the Long River Review completed, and she graduated. Uh, you can find it online. It's part of the creative writing section of the English department, but I think if you just Google Long River Review UConn, you will get right to it. Well, from students making films and students producing literary journals. This is going to be a really good segue. I can feel it. <laughs> we turn to students being uh, active participants in civic life mm. here at Tom's History Corner. Well, we remember the last time we did that. We had a, an election that... <laughs> I have a feeling this is going to get a little bit darker. Is Charlie's uncle part of this again? No. I hope God. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's set the Wayback Machine. Actually, that's probably copyrighted. Let's set the U Planet Yukon machine back to uh, <laughs> September 13th, 1980. Uh, there was um, a Ku Klux Klan rally oh, in Scotland, Connecticut. This is the first Klan rally in the state of Connecticut uh, since the 1920s at the time. Scotland, if you don't know it, it's maybe 15 miles from stores, maybe even not that far. It used to be part of Wyndham until there was a bloody guerrilla struggle for independence from the people. No, that's not true. I don't know. It's some mill owner decided he wanted to be part of Wyndham anymore, so he started his own town. I'm not sure. People in Scotland can correct me on that. Um, the one. <laughs> anyway, it's a very small rural town in eastern Connecticut, and uh, a clan group based in Louisiana, the Invisible Knights, or maybe the Invisible Empire. They, were, they called themselves invisible, but people could see them. Uh, that was one of their many false claims. They were going to have a rally there because they had some supporters in the state at the time. So... Yukon, being very close to Scotland, there was, in the fall of 1980, a lot of activity on campus, which ended up in the mainstream media. There was what you'd expect. Uh, the store's religious communities all came together to, they took out ads in the newspapers urging people not to go to the rally. That's good. The, uh, I mean, not just to like, I assume they imagined their message would fall on deaf ears of the Klan members, but um, they didn't want people to go as counter-demonstrators because they didn't want the Klan to get media attention. They sort Smart. of wanted this to fizzle out. And this is interesting to me now because of the resurgent white supremacist movement in the country and the questions about tactics and how to sort of mm -hmm. deal with those people. It's interesting to see what people were doing almost 40 years ago, many years before I was born. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> uh, Dr. Larry Bernstein, who was at the Hillel Foundation on campus at the time, said, Quote, any group in the U.S. has the right to exist, but we can be indignant at what they stand for, which I think is a good lesson All to take forward. All of this is sounding very familiar. I know, right? Yeah. But, so, there were some people on campus who did not want to limit it to putting out newspaper ads. This was a group called the International Committee Against Racism, or INCAR, as they are called. Uh, INCAR was a front group for the Progressive Labor Party, 
which was a communist party that had split away in the early 1960s from the Communist Party of the United States of America. And if you're a fan of leftist schisms as I am, it's a fascinating history. Uh, but the founding member of INCAR and a leading PLP member was a biology professor at UConn named Toby Schwartz. And so uh, there was also uh, an INCAR member here was an English professor named Herbert Goldstone. So Schwartz and Goldstone really kind of whipped people up about the Klan rally. And for context, this was less than a year after members of a communist group had been murdered by Klansmen and neo-Nazis in Greensboro, North Carolina. It's famous during a march. The Klan just shot these people down and were acquitted, incidentally, at different times. Or maybe not. Uh, so anyway, so Schwartz and Goldstone started organizing students. They got buses to go from campus to the rally. They had a rally at the student union to uh, stir people up. Um, so they were acting in direct opposition to the religious groups who wanted people to stand down. Right. Also, the, uh, the, um, at the time, it was called the Afro-American Cultural Center. They also told people not to go because they were afraid of violence, and they just thought, don't give them the oxygen of publicity. Mm-hmm. So, But INCAR was very much about direct confronting, and they were very coy. Reading the newspaper accounts at the time, they were very coy about the question of violence. They would say, reporters would say, like, well, is there going to be violence? And they'd say, ask the Klan. So, uh, spoiler alert, there was violence. Uh, it wasn't too bad. There were about eight people were treated for injuries at the old Wyndham General Hospital. Um, but apparently a lot of the violence was provoked by in-car members. Um, Shocking. There was a Yukon student. I won't name him, but it's, he's named in the newspaper accounts. There was a Yukon student who was an in-car member, and he was acting as a parade marshal. This is supposed to be someone who keeps the, the peace. He was actually attacked by, <laughs> he was attacked by other in-car members. <laughs> Wait a minute. Because they were fighting each other and he tried to break up the fight, which is a great commentary on far left politics. Like, if you're, aren't you trying to push a peace agenda if you're anti-racism? He, I would he, think. Well, they were, they were, I mean, directly like conference. They, so Schwartz was uh, said at the rally at the student union, the Klan is a cancer that has to be removed from our own backyard. So they were, they were not about the... They were aggro about it. Yeah. And yeah. They, they brought baseball bats and things. Jeez. The, the UConn student who was attacked by their in-car members, according to the newspaper account, was beaten with several branches. <laughs> you should not be laughing at this. He was, he was fine. He turned out fine. <laughs> he, um, he might be a listener. A, a, a group of anti-Klan demonstrators from Wesleyan actually left when they saw the UConn group because they said the UConn group had a reputation for violence. That's this embarrassing history. See, um, I knew you were going to take us to a dark place. This not, I don't know. I usually love Tom's history. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, the, the rally went on, um, and it was uh, there were about 250 Klansmen and supporters, 500 counter-demonstrators, and 200 state police. Wow. So the, the Klan, uh, at the time, had hoped that this would sort of uh, spark a resurgence in Connecticut. That did not happen. Thank God. Um, the local leader was actually arrested the same day of the rally for illegal possession of a weapon. Incar thought there was a big Hartford Current story about Incar profiling them uh, after this, and they thought that this would be a springboard for them to uh, organize groups across the state I'm guessing that didn't happen that also did not happen <laughs> um but it's, it's sort of an interesting slice of history and uh it, you know it shows a time um yukon students were very involved not just in politics on campus but were sort of interested in what was going on elsewhere Incar was particularly involved because they did a lot of work in willimantic at the time and there were the clan had sent cars with like loudspeakers on top like in the blues brothers <laughs> is, that, is that a reference that's not too old i get i get right. old references just all right. not all of them um and like the, they sent a, a car with loudspeakers around Willimantic, the housing projects in Willimantic, to say, like warning people, warning the white residents to leave because the buildings were going to be burned down. So it was like a tense, weird time. And Incar was on the front line of that, but uh, had a strategy that was much more confrontational. I have to others. say that although this was a, a bit of a dark slice of history, you did teach me something well, today. We always learn something when we visit Tom's we, history. We corner. are, after all, an educational institution. We are. I didn't know that, especially 1980. I don't think of 1980 as a, as right. a tumultuous a time. 
All right, that's gonna, that's going to do it for this episode. Hopefully not for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you're towing a line here. So, uh, uh, if you want to, it would be great if you would um, subscribe to this podcast because of our total listens, half come from subscribers, and I don't understand the other half of you who are not subscribing. It's really easy. We're now you on just Spotify. Open your app, and oh. Look who has a new podcast. But well, they are listening. That's the point. That is the point. But it'd be so much easier for them. Right. You wouldn't have to deliberately go and click download. It would just happen yep. automatically. Just be there for you. And now that we're on Spotify, there's no excuse. We're no on excuse. every single. We're on Everyone. Stitcher. Ones I've never even heard of. Yeah. So, you know, rate, subscribe, uh, live the dream. <laughs> Julie. <laughs> What, what do you want people to know oh this, this fortnight? That we're a lot more normal than we sound on this podcast. Um, I want to plug two videos by our awesome multimedia team. Elizabeth Karen and Angie Reyes, my buds, made some really cool, fun-to-watch videos. One is about physiology and neurobiology research being done on fireflies, which features gorgeous shots of fireflies lighting up at night during a thunderstorm. Very awesome. It's really good. And the other one is about uh, the very innovative new way Yukon's dairy cows are being milked that make the cows happier. So they're really fun to watch and they'll teach you something just like Tom does and make you learn. Um, Make you happy is what I meant to say. So visit Yukon today or youtube.com slash Yukon and you can check those out. Ken, when do you want people to know? Mondays from 4.30. Darn right. To 7 o'clock. WHUS. Streaming online at WHUS.org. Yukon Sound Alternative. That's where you can find moi. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at TJ Breen or at Yukon Podcast. That's something that Julie and I do. Thanks for listening this week. And uh, you know what? Next week, I'm going to promise that uh, Tom's History Corner will not have any fighting. Good job. No fighting. 